Listener warning. On this episode, we deal with subjects related to child abuse and trafficking, and though we are not a true crime podcast and did not want to get into the graphic detail of some of these horrific crimes and rather focus on the story surrounding the life and career of the subject, in order to do that, we had to touch on these topics in a few places. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. And I'm Chris Hansen, and welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and the nitty-gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Chris Hansen, Part 2. Who is Chris Hansen? He's an award-winning journalist with a storied career that dates back decades and involves many impressive feats of investigative reporting. Previously on Deep Cuts, we discussed the life and early career of Hansen, from his boyhood days watching the news coverage of Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance, to getting a job as a reporter before even graduating college, to helping bust an underground child trafficking ring in Cambodia. We also delved into the dubious origins of the online predator watchdog group perverted justice. And finally, when the two crossed paths to create the legendary, mega-popular Dateline NBC TV show To Catch a Predator. You know the show. You may love the show. But you may not know how it all ended in bloodshed. Line hidden camera investigation no parent will want to miss. Come in. This man could be your neighbor. Something I gotta tell you. I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC, and we're doing a story on this. Now you're free to walk out of this house right now. But if there's anything else you want to say, now would be the time to say it. But also, to the astonishment of the local district attorney, the Murphy police let people hired by Dateline actually set up and run the state. The police department, the professionals, uh, weren't in control of the entire operation. They weren't calling the shots. Somebody else was. I know you're old, and you don't have much life left. The problems. When you walk up to me and get in my face and tell me I'm getting in your face, then we have a problem. So I'll be right back. You hold tight. You're touching me, you know. You spit in my face. It was a devastating tragedy, a shock to all of us when the 56-year-old, a man who has prosecuted criminals for more than two decades, shot himself. Three months, News 8 has been reporting on questions about the TV show To Catch a Predator and its sting in Murphy, Texas. Now NBC is being sued for $105 million for its role in the show. The entertainment industry cannot act as police, judge, jury, executioner. And for a corporation like NBC, Ratings and money now. The lawsuit alleges the network puts its profits ahead of trapping sexual predators. That the show unethically obtains confidential data from local law enforcement officials. That it fabricates evidence and ultimately commits bribery. I have no problem, and I'm sure the nation should have no problem, with cameras standing behind the police and law enforcement doing their job. Everyone should have a problem with the cameras in front of the police, as was here. It was a made-for-TV sexting that split Murphy, Texas in two. Twenty-four men were arrested, but News 8 has learned none of them will be prosecuted. 
The way the cases were put together was in question from the start. So they, they didn't violate any laws. When, if they had gone in their home, it would have been a little different. But the fact that there's a constitutional right to expose these individuals, the fact that he was, in fact, doing this online chatting, it's not like he's completely innocent and he's sort of like sitting in his room and he's just surfing the net. He was thinking that he was chatting with a 13-year-old yeah, boy. He got caught because uh, the National Enquirer had a sting operation on him. So uh, they had uh, hidden cameras following him around. And they caught uh, footage of him going to her apartment, you know, a little frisky frisky, a little dinner dinner. I'm Chris Hansen, and you are going to help me catch predators again. Go ahead, have a seat right over there. This will just take a few minutes. Does this guy look familiar? Well, former host of the TV show To Catch a Predator, Chris Hansen, was arrested Monday. One of the streamers uh, who I see a lot and I get a lot of people saying you ought to look into him, you ought to look into him, is this Onision. There are multiple, multiple allegations, um, no criminal charges, we should be very clear, that he and his partner have groomed underage girls. 911, what are you reporting? Hi, I'm calling back. I reported some people who showed up in my house. Um, they're trespassing and they're online. What's the address there? Act 3. Creating News. When Dateline and Perverted Justice carried out the first sting operation that would constitute the very first episode of To Catch a Predator, Hansen was terrified that nobody would show up to the house. That he had put his entire career on the line, using his personal credibility and reputation to convince NBC to bankroll a kind of ethically ambiguous endeavor, and would wind up like his contemporary, Geraldo Rivera, when he had opened Al Capone's vault, empty-handed, humiliated, and discredited. They busted 18 Predators. The format for To Catch a Predator, or TCAP, was masterfully simple. Perverted Justice would engage in decoy chats with as many online Predators as they could find. Dozens of decoys from across the country were hooking Predators, and they all set up a meet time for the Predator to meet up with what they thought were underage kids as young as 13 at the decoy house that had been rented by NBC. The Predators were all slotted at different times of the day. They'd show up to hang out with a minor, a young-looking actor would answer the door, invite them in, make small talk for a few minutes, everything would be caught on hidden cameras from several angles, Chris Hansen would appear from behind a curtain or doorway, issue his soon-to-be legendary catchphrase, have a seat right over there, and proceed to have one of the most awkward and disgusting interviews in the history of the world. And it went perfectly. Hansen has said that he always suffered from something akin to stage fright and extreme anxiety in the moments leading up to his confrontation. But you can't tell it all when you see the commanding, charismatic, almost paternal force of energy storm into the room and take the Predator to task. The episode was a smash success. People across the country ate it like crack-covered hotcakes. It was the perfect storm for primetime news television. After all, literally who doesn't hate child predators? It's like the platonic ideal of capturing all four quadrants of viewer demographics. As you watch, you're shocked and disgusted by the things the predators are saying in the chat log filled with hatred at the mere sight of them as they approach the house and start flirting with what they think is a 14-year-old girl. And all of your hatred and disgust is immediately gratified as you watch them being exposed. To add a cherry on top, the way that the predators attempt to rationalize, explain away, or deny the things they've been caught doing is usually always hilarious. It's literally the perfect content for a sensational age of news consumption, obsessed with salacious stories that pierce our very emotional core. And yeah, I can't, I can't really stress that enough. There are some major 
ethical questions about the the mere enjoyment of this show by you know a, a, you know a television audience but all those things aside which we will talk about i literally don't think that there is a better show to get ratings it's like it appeals to literally everybody unless except for people who you know just don't want to watch this because it's disgusting to them and they they don't find entertainment value from it because it's just so gross which is kind of how I feel. It appeals to everybody. Even though everybody in the world right now thinks that we are very divided on this, we aren't actually divided on this at all. Everybody hates the idea of child predators. It's like the one thing that everybody can agree on. Literally the only thing left yes. that everyone can agree on. Mm-hmm. The format of the show is so effortlessly perfect in just hooking you and keeping you hooked because the issue with, you know, something like the, you know, the the Cambodia special is that it's just punishingly sad and disgusting. There is a kind of a resolution at the end where they bust it up, but you have to sit through this hour long, abjectly sad documentary about this horrible thing happening in the world. But that's kind of hard to watch. It's hard. It's hard to have the emotional endurance to sit there and see such terrible, disgusting, inhumane things happening in the world. The beauty of the format of, of TCAP is you see a little bit of that. You, you see enough of it to get angry. All the while, as they're kind of teasing out these chat logs that the people are having with the decoys, they're also showing you like the house being set up and everybody getting into place and Hanson kind of like teasing what's going to happen. And so it's like teasing that out as well. It's kind of staggering them. Your anger and your disgust is being ratcheted up, but you're also like, it's a building to something and it's getting to something else and you're like waiting for it. And then, you know, at the perfect moment, your disgust and your anger is immediately gratified because they get right to it. Once the guy gets to the house, they don't spend a bunch of time having him talk to the actor. And I think smartly, they don't try to get a situation where they get him trying to actually do something physical on camera, which I think would probably, number one, you know, that that puts a, an actor in danger. And number two, I think that that would be too far for the audience. Number one, to be sitting there and sort of squirming under this really uncomfortable scene. You know, nobody wants to see an attempted sexual assault on camera. They don't even bother with that. They just get right to it. The the actor literally has like a minute of small talk with the with the person. When once the person comes inside, they'll they'll literally talk for like a minute before Chris Hansen comes out. And it's the perfect time because you're you've you've gotten all this disgust and all this anger ratcheted up from the chat logs. Just the mere fact that he's there and just looking at him and how old he is. And they'll let him say a couple of weird, creepy things. And then Hansen comes out and the tables are turned and then it's just like a, a nationally televised cathartic act of schadenfreude where you're just watching this guy's life being destroyed and watching him squirm and watching him realize his life is over, you know, right in front of your eyes. From an entertainment value, from a cynical entertainment value, it's it's like the, the most perfect show that has ever been conceived, basically. And also, you know, if you're thinking about it in callous, almost like war games terminology, it's a no win scenario for the person who shows up. Yeah. Like there's no way to position it as anything other than exactly what it is. Um, and we, the audience, know that. And so anything that this person says, any lie or attempted, you know, 
it's a very black and white thing. Yeah. And also they have records of everything. So it's not a, it's not any sort of conversation where you, the viewer are an impartial judge of if this person is guilty or not. Like the show itself is the judge, jury and executioner. And now you're almost, it's almost like watching an execution in some way. It's like, it's like a shooting fish in a barrel for the lack of a better term. It's this, it's this weird, like we as a culture are collectively emotionally stoning someone, mm-hmm. which that's, is yeah. really dark. Yeah, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's what the Jerry album confrontation was, except the missing component of that, because, you know, he confronts him. You see the sort of life drain from his face you see the realization that he's been exposed for this thing and that his life is over all just play out in real time. And you, and you see all these desperate excuses and just him, you know, improving through trying to rationalize and, and, and obfuscate. I go, I go there every night. I go there all the time. That does not mean that I frequent with the child prostitutes that are in that place. Even though I am saying that I go there every night yeah. And it's a, it's it's this it's this um it's this dynamic where you know he knows that you know that what he's saying is total bullshit and you know that he knows that you know that what he's saying is total total bullshit. So it's this combination of just the shame and embarrassment and knowledge that you're fucked. But the missing component was that at the end of it he walked he walked into his building and never saw repercussions from it. Whereas this like you said, it's shooting fish in a barrel. It's the equivalent of watching somebody like walk into like a gas chamber and just go to their execution and getting to watch it in real time, which is, you know, something that happens. People, uh, the families of victims who are murdered by somebody in, in certain states, whenever, you know, the death penalty is legal and they're put to death, you can actually go and watch it happen. And you can sit in a room and see it happen through a window. Yeah, in some ways, it's kind of, um, it's the ultimate us versus them. Mm-hmm test because you know american american culture loves to paint other people as the villains and it loves to divide people that you know we're a very we're a very uh we're a very by uh we're, we're, we're it's it's Bina- our culture binary is, is culture binary culture our, our culture is very binary you know we have cats and we have cat people and dog people we have republicans and democrats we have you know all of these made up we have things bacon that, and legs we have we have we have, we have clumpians and fucking norbidians yeah, exactly. The Clumpians versus the Norbidians, which I, we all, we all know who, what's the correct one there. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there, we don't, we don't have any gray area here. We love to say we have the moral high ground. Those people are awful, regardless of the actual intricacies or nuances, because life isn't black and white. Life is always gray. I mean, it sucks. I want life to be black and white. It'd make everything a lot easier, but it's not. And this is the combination of the fact that child abuse is like the only thing that everyone can agree on and the specific way that it is framed. We, the audience are the us, this individual is the them and we are all going to get off on watching them get fucked. Mm-hmm. And every, everybody's done something wrong. Everybody's broken the law in some way. Everybody's made a transgression that they wish they hadn't done or said something stupid, but when it's ratcheted up to this level, any sort of human empathy just goes out the door. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. That's just, I mean, I think it is a bad thing. I mean, everyone should have human empathy, regardless of the crimes at hand. 
I guess, I don't know, I don't even know if I think that, because there are, you know, people committing genocide and fucking female circumcision and all these awful, just morally repugnant things that I just don't know if you commit those acts, you deserve empathy. I don't, I don't believe in the death penalty. Let's just put it that way. I don't believe in the death penalty. But this show distills that argument down to just a one and a zero. Mm-hmm. And it is, there is no gray area. And that, that is the brilliance, the, like you said, the cynical brilliance of To Catch a Predator is that it, it allows for no room for nuance at all. It, which isn't life. It, life is, life is nuanced and complex and gray and shitty and fucked up and sloppy. But that's why this show succeeded is because it removed that the the reality and presented the artifice of look at this gleaming cube of fuck this guy yeah and as it's going to sort of play out over you know the next several years and the next you know chunk of this episode that gave it this amazing moral high ground where even as those complexities and those nuances were attempting to be discussed at a national level those nuances really never had room to exist or be considered or sort of taken seriously because any discussion about any nuance put you in a position of arguing that it was not objectively good to lure these child online predators to be, you know, caught and arrested. And it's it's hard to argue against that, as I'll kind of reiterate several times in different ways to sort of hammer that point home. It creates this confliction inside of yourself where you want to address the complications and the nuance of it, but you also kind of keep turning over in your mind over and over again of like, yeah, but then there's this, but no, but they're they're pedophiles. But I guess there's this, but no, they're pedophiles. Fuck that. They're they're terrible. But also maybe this is kind of weird, but no, they're fucking pedophiles. Like it just even within your own mind, you can't reconcile it. Let alone can you convince somebody who is so adamantly diametrically opposed to you on this. Like there are people who there is no room for for nuance at all. If you are a pedophile, you should be murdered. And if the government isn't going to do it, then we should do it. We you know, you, you see people talking about all the time how they would want to you know be vigilantes going around finding people on sex offender registries and murdering them in their homes and you have people that actually have done that and it's one of those things where it's like i do not support vigilante justice but i i can't really firmly get behind saying that that's wrong because of the target of it but also i can say that because i i really don't believe in vigilante justice so you you just keep turning over and over your mind it's a paradox that you can't reconcile well, especially with when it's, you know, a piece of entertainment that's televised, it brings up all these ethical questions like due process and the right to be protected against unreasonable search and seizure and the right to be presumed innocent until you're proven guilty, where when when people's crimes are turned into entertainment and you get in this really gray area where it's like, we all saw the process that ABC, NBC, CBS... CNN, Fox News, whoever the, you know, whatever the big media company is, we all saw the process that they showed us. That doesn't mean that we actually saw what happened. As someone who's worked on multiple TV shows, editing is a hell of a thing, especially now that deep fakes exist and all of these weird ways of, you know, compositing footage and 
George Lucas fucking digitally soldering two takes together. Today, right now, you and I have access to the technology where we could 100% frame someone for being a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Right now, with technology that we have in our homes, we could deep fake someone's face onto an actor. We could show them going into a house. We could present a very compelling case that they were a pedophile. And then what does that mean? It goes viral on the internet, and now these, this motherfucker is getting, like, killed in the street by a, get roving gangs of vigilante parents who are like, not my kid! And I understand the root emotion of that. I'm just saying... I'm not even advocating for not watching To Catch a Predator. I'm I'm just saying that it brings up hypothetical moral quandaries that people like to be like you said, they're pre- they're pedophiles who gives a shit. Yeah, but come on, man, haven't you ever seen any of these shows like about deconstructing how people get at, re- framed on on death row and like horrible horrible corrupt institutions? For some reason, there's one person who has a little bit of power in one of these institutions, and all of a sudden, this person's on death row for something they didn't commit. Like, that could so easily happen in a system like a media company where there's less checks and balances than there are in the already crazy, corrupt police systems. And that and that is happening already. This is a tiny shred of a glimpse of, you know, an episode that is going to be done. Definitely going to be done. It's going to happen. It's going to be fucking insane, but that, that is happening and doing, you know, the deep fake thing is terrifyingly in my mind, an inevitable next step of this, but it's already essentially happening right now. People are creating memes. And when I say meme, I just mean a, an image that is being shared on the internet that you know, deliver some kind of information, whether it's a joke or a sort of emotional statement or literal information. And people are just sharing memes that just say, oh, Tom Hanks and Jim Carrey and James Gunn and Barack Obama and Ben Affleck and all of these other politicians and celebrities who coincidentally have all had outspoken liberal beliefs and have served as these sort of mouthpieces for liberal politics on social media. Look at this. They were all on the Epstein flight logs. They've all, they've, their names are all on the, on the, on the leaked flight manifest of all of the passengers who have flown on Epstein's private jets since 1992. And on the strength of these these memes, there are millions of people, literally millions. It's not a couple of people. There are millions of people who 100% think that Tom Hanks is a pedophile, that think that Jim Carrey is a pedophile, that think that these people. And it's just 100% not true. 100%. We have the Epstein flight manifest. It's available it was leaked to the public. The reason why we know about it, the reason why we have it, the reason why anybody has seen it is because it was it was obtained and leaked to the public by Gawker. And you can read that document. It's 200 pages long. I have read it. Tom Hanks's name is not on it. Jim Carrey's name is not on it. If you've seen a meme purporting that Tom Hanks and Jim Carrey and Barack Obama and all these other names were found on the Epstein flight manifest, it's fake. But people 
150 million percent believe that it's true because they saw a meme because human beings, as we talked about on the the George Zimmerman episode, they just are not equipped to be discerning like that whenever they're being barraged with information 24 hours a day. Your, 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 your brain in an act of self-protection of being overwhelmed with more information than it can consume favors anything that confirms your narrow biased perspective of things. It's like, oh, that thing is something I already kind of think. Oh, yeah, that looks good. I don't know what the fuck that is. So get that out of here. I don't know what that is. I don't want to read that. I don't know what that means. I don't want to. I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole. That, though, I already kind of thought that. So, yeah, that put that in here. Fit that into here. That, get it out of here. Don't want it. Give me the gift receipt. Get it out of here. And that's what everybody's doing on a daily basis. That's the worst case scenario of this conversation we're having, which is kind of already happening right now. It goes back into what I was talking about in the very beginning of episode one, the the intro, uh, talking about altruism and the media's involvement with social justice and things like that is with that in mind, with that knowledge that number one, human beings can be so easily manipulated. Number two, that the media or people utilizing media can so easily falsify things and so easily manipulate, how can you trust these things as arbiters of justice? I'm Dave. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. The show was immediately greenlit for a second episode based on massively successful ratings, but it wasn't without criticism. The primary two being what was being done was legal entrapment and not ultimately going to be admissible in a court of law to actually prosecute anybody and that there was no law enforcement involved to actually arrest the predators. Yes, in the first two episodes of TCAP, the cops were not involved. Much like the old days of the perverted justice humor site, predators were exposed, grilled, humiliated, and then free to leave back to their lives without repercussions, all for entertainment. Von Erk was accustomed to this kind of criticism at a smaller scale, though, so he was immediately prepared to respond. Well, I, I strongly disagree with it. It leans more toward uh, perverted than it does justice. Um, they're not cooperating with police at all. And, you know, to me, that kind of gives a sense of entertainment. Anybody that finds entertainment value in exploiting children, I have a problem with it. Xavier, how do you respond? Uh, Julie Posey seems to be the only person on the planet who's finding entertainment value from our website. We have assisted in 25 arrests, six convictions. In fact, in the last five weeks, we've had 11 arrests, indictments, or convictions. If you go by the full year with that ratio, we will have more arrests, indictments, and convictions than Julie Posey did in seven years. Why? Because... Thank you. Because we have told the public, we've told you, the viewing audience, that you have a role. We're not like Julie Posey who tries to be the cybercrime fighter, doing it all herself. We say to you, the public, you can help, and you can help fight this epidemic. Man, that is, that is so Orwellian. That is so, like, you, the public, can stand up and do something. You, my brothers, collectively can save the children by shaming everyone and spying on everyone. Yeah. Would you like to know more? It, yeah. And, and, and it's also that narrative is it, you can see that that narrative that has been codified because we're going to talk about this later on because it's going to it's going to come into play with Chris Hansen and, and some of the stuff that he does. But right now we'll kind of apply to this and we'll say that what he's doing here is he is utilizing a psychological tactic, which is called amplifying and deflecting, which is 
when you choose the most extreme over the top version of an argument and you you amplify that so you have all these criticisms coming at you you hand pick the most absurd of them and you amplify it and then you deconstruct that to deflect criticism basically by omission of anything other than what you've crafted to you know be the focus what he's doing here you know he he responds to this criticism by basically being like well we're doing this and we're doing this but if those audience members and if that television audience that was watching this interview or this this show, if they were given insight into any of the information that we covered on the last episode about perverted justice and any of the backstory behind them, it's inarguable that they were a humor website that was doing it for entertainment value. It's just inarguable. They 100% were. But at the same time, he sort of used that as kind of a trap because this other person, she basically says that. She says like, you know, I have a problem with this because they're pretty much doing this for as some kind of weird, sick entertainment. They're not, it's not really about stopping child predators or, or helping children. They just think it's funny and they, and their, their audience gets off on this weird, like group cathartic hatred of something that they can all collectively agree that they're superior to. And she says this, but then he can very easily turn that around on her by being like, huh, that's weird that you think it's fu- entertaining. Huh, strange. I think she's the only one who finds this entertaining. It's like she he's turned this around on her. She she's fallen into, into this trap that he set where he can play plausible deniability and then kind of make it seem like she is she's projecting something onto the situation when she's definitely right. Like he, they were doing it for entertainment. But, you know, because of that, it's it's so easy to turn that around on her and then, you know, of course, that whole that whole fucking audience was eating up every word that he says. You've got a, a 30 minute TV show. You've given them a small snippet of information. There's no way that that audience is going to be on the side of somebody criticizing somebody taking down pedophiles. It's just not going to happen. They don't have enough information to come to a more objective conclusion on that. It wasn't that Von Erich was necessarily a master debater or particularly commanding, but There's just simply not a lot of work you have to do to get people on your side when your side is exposing pedophiles. It's a loaded argument where anybody criticizing you is starting from a position of defending a child predator. Anybody who went up against them was easily crushed under the moral superiority that TCAP and perverted justice had. All I have to say is that Xavier Von Erich may not be a master debater, but he definitely looks like a master debater. Yep, 100%. However, one thing they could not get around was the lack of law enforcement involvement or true prosecution of these criminals. For the first two episodes of TCAP, basically none of the men who were exposed during the stings were actually prosecuted. The official reason that police departments in the area gave is that there were jurisdictional issues created by the fact that the chat decoys that perverted justice employed were located all over the country. In order to be able to prosecute the men they lured and trapped, they'd have to communicate and cooperate with law enforcement agencies from all of those areas. But in reality, It was more likely that the police departments just didn't like a TV news reporter and a bunch of internet people trying to do their job for them. The biggest criticism was saved for Hansen himself, though. And criticism came largely from his peers. From day one of TCAP airing on TV, journalists and news organizations from all over the country were incredibly dubious about the ethical sanctity of what TCAP was doing. And it wasn't even about the alleged legal entrapment. Hansen had crossed a thick, bold line in the sand with TCAP's patented brand of setting up traps and confronting criminals. He was creating news. In the world of journalistic ethics, it is agreed upon by most that a journalist should report on the news, not create it. 
That means a distinct separation between the press observing, investigating, and reporting on crimes, and law enforcement catching and prosecuting the criminals. Think about those early days in Hansen's childhood. The restaurant where Jimmy Hoffa was disappeared, swarming with cops, searching for clues and interviewing witnesses, surrounded by a perimeter of police tape, restricting anybody outside of the police from entering the crime scene. And then the press, congregating outside of that perimeter, craning their necks to get a glimpse of anything remotely interesting for their story. This was the law of the land. Criminals create news, journalists report on it, and law enforcement handles the rest. Hansen had waltzed right through that police tape and parked right smack dab in the middle of the action. He was doing all three, and not only that, but viewers loved him for it. His peers were not happy about this, but our boy Chrissy Hanhans didn't give a fuck. Do you think he gave a crap about what a bunch of stuffy, jealous, and territorial old world weathermen thought about his adherence to journalistic code of ethics? He was doing exactly what he craved from his boyhood days, riding his bike around the suburbs of Detroit. He was as close as he could possibly be to the story, breaking salacious and shocking news. He was looked at as a hero by viewers across the country. And you know what? The viewers were on his side. It's hard to care about ethics when real pedophiles are being caught. TCAP's critics did not stand a chance. Imagine even trying to take this stance in today's current QAnon climate. You'd have a dude with a submachine gun standing in your office screaming at you to tell him where the kidnapped children are by nightfall. The issue with getting law enforcement involved in the first two episodes was not actually by choice. Perverted Justice had long ago started making efforts to do this. The actual issue is that no law enforcement wanted to touch it. If other journalists and news organizations were jealous of TCAP's success and ratings, police were deeply resentful of the public perception that somebody was finally doing something about this problem. They saw it as a direct insult to their efforts. But regardless of your thoughts on what TCAP was doing, the cops were wrong. The broader acceptance of the internet and social media was still in its infancy, and most of the established infrastructure of law enforcement and prosecution just didn't understand it or have the first clue about how to approach cracking down on it. The police were not equipped to do what perverted justice was doing, and even if what they were doing was ethically gray, they created a national conversation around how to combat online criminals that pushed education and preparedness around the topic forward years. Here are Hansen's rather elegant thoughts on navigating the ethical grays of doing the show and working with police that really do a good job of emotionally selling the righteous good of it. And two things came to mind. One, it was socially irresponsible to let these guys just go uh, because it was harder for the police to build a case. And two, it was unfulfilling for the viewer to see these guys walk away in the wind just from a practical television production sure. standpoint. So it was right about then that we were contacted by Riverside County Sheriff's Department and said, do you want to do this? And so we fashioned a way, you know, and we took a lot of criticism from, you know, Scarlet J journalists, you're working too close to police, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, you know what? Sometimes you have to change the rules. You have to, you have to expand your horizons. You have to do what's right for society, for the story. and you know, for public safety. And, you know, I'll take that criticism anytime. Yeah, I saw, I saw, as I was reading the articles, I saw some of that criticism and I didn't get it. I mean, you were here, the first one, I mean, some people thought that you were, you know, entrapping these people. I don't see that at it's all. Not it's not entrapping. First of all, you have to be law enforcement to, to, to commit entrapment. It's not a civilian civil infraction, right, as you know say as that. a lawyer. Yep. Yeah, so that's number one. Number two, we have a very strict protocol. And even the last one, 
that we did, the most recent one in Connecticut, you know, the guys have to raise the specter of sex first. They have to make the solicitation. They have to make the first approach. There are a number of protocols in place that are consistent with those of law enforcement and a fair and honest prosecution. So it's it's really uh, the solicitation online that makes the case, right. that breaks law. Him showing up is the TV part. Enter the Riverside, California Sheriff's Department, who were all about what TCAP was doing and more than happy to help. Hansen and Perverted Justice finally had the missing piece of their TCAP formula, a willing and enthusiastic law enforcement body to back them up and make the busts actually affect arrests and prosecutions. For episode three of To Catch a Predator, NBC set up a sting house in Riverside. Perverted Justice catfished 50 predators into coming over to meet minors. Hansen confronted all 50 of them and the Riverside Sheriff's Department arrested all 50 of them. Back in 2002, Hansen helped break up an entire child trafficking ring in Cambodia, and only 12 arrests were made over a period of months. 50 child predators were arrested over the course of a couple days. And that was just for one episode of the show. It's almost enough good karma to make up for anything any of these people went on to do for the rest of their lives. Almost. The house sting, as well as all future stings, were broken up into two hour long parts. The episode was an even bigger hit than the previous two, but it also came with more criticism and controversy. This time around, it was because NBC had started paying perverted justice for their work on the show, which other news organizations claimed was tantamount to paying a source, which is an ethical no-no in the world of journalism. Although, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. TCAP was ostensibly perverted justice's show. It was based on their work, and they were the ones that were shopping it around to networks. Also, they were doing a lot more than just providing a source. They were actually working in tandem with NBC and the police to lure the predators in and get them to the houses. They were doing the heavy lifting, and Hansen was just jumping out of a corner and lecturing them. And the police were just shooting fish in a barrel as the predators fled the scene. Shouldn't PJ get paid for that? Is it really that unethical to get paid for providing that kind of a service? Other notable moments in TCAP episodes. The time Hansen busted up a ring of pedophile rabbis. So how can I help you? Go ahead, have a seat. I suggest you sit down. And take your hands out of your pockets, please. What are you doing here? Not something good. Why don't you tell me what your plan was? I don't want to be. This isn't good. Not good? That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? It appears from this that you were setting up a meeting with a 13-year-old boy. What do you do for a living? A rabbi. A rabbi. Now, presumably, you counsel families and children in your position as a rabbi. Sure. Children. What are you doing as a, a man of God, as a rabbi, in this house, trying to meet a 13-year-old boy. You know I'm in trouble, and I know I'm in trouble. I am not interested in getting any further. I am Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC, and we're doing a story on computer predators. Oh, no. Come on, guy. Don't, don't, you don't want to, you don't want to touch anybody. You don't want to. It was really one of the only times, the only time, really, where somebody actually physically lunged at me. Now, looking back, I really don't think I was in much danger. But you can see how the security system works. Our guy stepped in, took care of it, and diffused the situation. I am overwhelmed with anxiety right now after watching that. That is so 
I, I, I completely understand why people want to watch it because it is so visceral, but oh my God, that is just not my idea of something I'm trying to hang out and watch. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll 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 talk about this. You know, we're gonna get into a, a open discussion about some of these concepts of like what we think about them. But you know, in short, um, we you know, other than some of the ethical things that we we're talking about earlier, um, with just the you know the the weird like way that this this show is almost like a like a, a Roman Colosseum, just watching you know men fight tigers and you know it's like the modern day equivalent of that um other than some of the ethical things we were talking about um this show you know it's like for me it's like i'm glad that those 300 guys got caught but i have no interest in watching this like i'm glad that they got arrested i think that these things should be stopped and uncovered and ended and these people should be arrested but i don't want to watch a tv show about it yeah yeah, I uh, obviously I don't want anybody to get hurt. Uh, it's better if these people don't have access to anything that they can hurt kids with. But oof, I that is just not my idea of a good time to watch. Nope, I don't think this is going to be any better for you. There was the time a predator literally showed up to a sting and then showed up to another sting the next day. And you thought it was appropriate to walk into the home of a 14-year-old boy who you thought was alone, buck naked? What was your plan? Uh, no, sir. What's your full name? John Kinnara. And you're a school bus driver or a teacher? Teacher. You're a teacher. I'm going to need to see some ideas. I'm not that They just come out and get the beer that he was bringing. Um, In the middle of being confronted, since you can't see that, what happened, the, the actor playing the boy walks out and opens a bag of beer that he brought which is just amazing and then just walks off with it like they're like oh we might as well keep this yeah. some of the grips are getting thirsty <laughs> i am not the father of the boy but i am chris hansen of dateline nbc doing a story on computer predators anything else you'd like to say to us we'd like to hear it if not you're free to leave thank you you can take the towel to the garage and get dressed so that was uh that was from one of the first two episodes where they weren't actually involving the police yet so they just confront him and then they just let him leave so he left and then this happened and less than 24 hours later there he is in a chat room trying to make a date with another young teenage boy we couldn't believe it but it was the same screen name same everything so the decoy made a date and they agreed to meet at a nearby fast food restaurant we move into position he walks out of the restaurant, and we're there waiting for him. I have been in television for 24 years. I just came to get something to eat. And I have very seldom been at a loss for words. Sir, I just came but to get something to eat. But I don't even know what to ask you first. I just came to get something to eat. John, we've been through this before. What are you doing? I've got the chat log again. Chris Hansen actually originally auditioned to play Legs. I does that guy get arrested? They, they didn't. The, the, from the first two episodes, like no nobody got arrested or prosecuted. Bro, also this is just this is an this is evidence of how how well this is constructed and how immediate 
the narrative communicates because when you hit that X on that, I was like, my gut instinct was, no, I need to see what happens next. <laughs> like literally, like yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. Well, stop, no. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 it's designed to be, it's, it's designed to be a tension crack. It's like, what, what happened to that guy? Like, I mean, is, well, in terms of the episode, like he just, they, they sit there and grill him for five minutes and then he leaves. Man, the ethical quandary definitely still exists, but thank God they have cops involved. Yeah. Or maybe not. I don't even know. But it, I, the emotional need to have them arrested is, is very high. Well, other than what we're going to, what we're going to get into as this story starts to ratchet up later, whenever the cops involvement becomes pretty bad. Um, if you're going to do this show and do this, you probably should have them arrested at the end. Cause otherwise, literally, what the hell are you doing this for? Yeah. And possibly the most infamous segment, the sting on Lauren Armstrong, a Southern good old boy predator who famously yelled, Oh, God, and broke down crying when Chris Hansen walked into the room. An ironic religion has formed on the internet around him called the Church of Cod. Hi, sir. How are you? All right. How are you doing? What's happening? Not too much. Not too much. So what are you up to tonight? Not a whole lot. Well, I'll tell you, for the last several days, you've been up to a lot. You're a pretty prolific chatter there. You want to explain yourself? Not really. I never really was going to do anything. You weren't really going to do anything? No. What do you think ought to happen to you? I think I should go to counseling to get off the internet. I can do something that I can't do that. <laughs> what go on? Well, there's something i got to tell you. I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC, and we're doing a story on... Oh. It's really hard not to go oh, quad. Yeah. The other thing about these, this show is... The other component of these that I don't see anybody else talking about is just all the ethical stuff aside, how dark this shit is aside. It's kind of hilarious to me that like a significant portion of this show involves improv and like a literal actor like playing a kid and just like improving with a predator. And then like even Chris Hansen is kind of improving. Like he comes in and he's just having a conversation with them and he's not having a real conversation with them. He's not just a person talking to somebody. He's performing for the camera. He's playing Chris Hansen. So all the things he's saying is just him thinking of like good responses to what the, what the person says. So he's not just thinking of responses. He's thinking of statements and slam dunks on him or sort of winks and nods to the audience at home. And there's just something a little funny to me about the fact that like this whole thing is like this weird play that, that, that they're performing with, with a pedophile. So strange. TCAP also set up stings in Greenville, Ohio, Fort Myers, Florida, Fortson, Georgia, Petaluma, California, Long Beach, California, and finally, infamously, Murphy, Texas. In July of 2006, TCAP was massively popular, but it was also under a lot of scrutiny. The call of detractors criticizing the supposed unethical nature of the show, Hansen creating news, and the questionable tactics of perverted justice became stronger and stronger. PJ became the target of many anti-vigilante groups like Corrupted Justice. Other news orgs were really trying to put the screws to what they were doing. Like the time Byron Harris from ABC's 2020, a main competitor to Dateline, tried to confront Xavier Von Eric at one of his speaking engagements to question him about the show's tactics. The altercation gets really weird and awkward. Hey, I think you were getting in my face. No, I'm actually, here. you I'm walked here. up to me, son. And you walked up to me. Now, uh, I know you think you're really Am I your son? You are acting like one. I know you're old. 
And you know I wish life left. And you have problems. But when you walk up to me and get in my face and tell me I'm getting in your face, then we have a problem. So I'll be right back. You hold You're tight. touching me, you know? You spit in my face. I did. Yeah, you did. Please keep your dribble to yourself. Be right back. First off, you're trying to be disruptive. You're trying to be negative. Okay, if you want to be a journalist, yes, journalist, you have questions. You don't walk up to me and go, you're getting in my face. Don't walk up to me and tell you me know, I'm getting in your face. You know, we have it all on camera, so we'll see what we, uh, we'll You can see have your camera all day long. We'll, we'll see what I'm we'll sure see you'll what edit it the way you want to edit it. I'm sure you'll do your little thing. And that's why you're a local reporter, not national. That's why you've been in this business. How many years? How many years have you been a reporter? 35. 35. And where do you work? Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. And you work for a local affiliate, right? Correct. Have you ever asked yourself why you work for a local affiliate, Byron? Yes. Yeah. I, I work there because I want to be there. Oh, you've never, you've had all these opportunities to move up and you've turned them down. No, I actually work for the network. Oh, you work for yeah, the network? I work yeah. for ABC. You work for ABC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why you're doing the reporting you're doing, aren't you? No. Yeah. Excuse me, he's been trying to harass me. He got up in my face and said, get out of my face. He basically spit in my face. And uh, he's been trying to disrupt the conference we're doing. So if you could please escort him. I didn't do that yet, so. Well, we would like you to leave, though, because we do not want our speaker to be uncomfortable in this situation. Well, you know, Dave Kaplan yes. said I could be here. Yes, yes. Um, certainly, I can get Dave Kaplan involved here. Yeah, why don't you go Why don't we go off to the show floor together? Well, let's, let's just stay here. Why don't now, you, you can here? explain to Dave Kaplan why you've been trying to harass me and got in my face and insulted me. You can do that. Yeah. Because we really yeah, do want this to be a positive experience okay. for everyone. So. Thank you very much. I will. And you can email anytime you want, and we'll be glad to Hey, well, let me give you my card, because I sure would like to have a conversation. Well, I already have an email address, so it's fine. Well, I'd, Thank I'd, you. I'd like to have a phone conversation with Frag and Dell. They're the people I really came to talk to. Well, here. that's too bad. Why? Because. That's up to them. Don't ask me for well, them to talk You wouldn't give them their, my business card with I'm my phone number really on? I'm really busy. I'm sorry. This is like the most aggressive fucking uh, Kevin Smith looking motherfucker ever. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> One of the most awkward things I've ever seen. I'm not even saying that Von Erich is like the bad guy in that. Everybody involved in that is just so uncomfortable because they're all performing for the because the camera's on. Even the little the mediator, the, the person that works at the building or whatever, like even she is like, I'm talking like this because I know that a news camera is recording and I'm going to represent my company in the most positive way ever. And so I'm going to talk like a robot. The only thing I have to say about that is Xavier Von Eric has a very punchable face. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, he he's performing, too. He's performing as the shitty, low rent Kevin Smith. I'm witty and like everything he says is just like it's it's so awkward. The best part of that, too, is the thing you don't get is so he's hosting this conference and it's in like this rec center in, you know, bumfuck nowhere, Texas or whatever. And there's like four people in that conference room. <laughs> like literally, there's like four or five people there. Yeah. And they're all spread out. It's like a seat. It's like a room that's meant to seat like 200, 300 people. This was the climate under which the Murphy, Texas sting was done. It started out like any other house sting. Dateline and Perverted Justice worked closely with the local Murphy police to coordinate the sting. PJ would lure the men to the house, Hanson would confront them, and Murphy PD would arrest them. However, there was something slightly different about this job. The Murphy police chief, Billy Myrick, was so gung-ho about his department making a name for itself with his sting, he ignored a lot of protocol. Typically in these stings, PJ starts the online conversations with the predators, but then works in tandem with the local police to vet the predators 
and make sure an arrest can be made if and when they show up. But the Murphy police were completely hands-off with the actual investigation, more than happy to implicitly trust perverted justice's intelligence and investigative results in order to make the arrests. They let PJ lead and just went along with whatever they said because Myrick just wanted to do whatever he had to do for national notoriety. He didn't even bother telling the Murphy District Attorney's Office about the sting or the partnership with NBC. So, in 2006, right before the sting was supposed to actually happen, when Perverted Justice faxed the Murphy DA's office to discuss planning, they were shocked to see the DA's response. We will take no part in the planning or execution of the sting operation. We must take pains not to implicitly authorize or direct non-law enforcement entities to act as our agents during this law enforcement operation. The Collin County District Attorney's Office is in the law enforcement business, not in the show business. For some reason, this sting felt off from the beginning. From the police chief's over-enthusiasm to participate, to the DA's stern rejection of cooperation, right down to the fact that a group of concerned parents in the surrounding neighborhoods of the Sting House contacted the local city government expressing concerns about a new station luring dangerous child predators onto their streets where their children played. Something just wasn't right about this one. TCAP went ahead and did it anyway, and they ended up aiding in the arrest of 25 men. The Sting went smoothly with no issue, and they got their guys. Another successful TCAP episode in the can, the Murphy police can smile for the camera and take their credit, and they can all rub it in the face of the Murphy DA's office, right? I'll accept one detail. One of the predators, who was supposed to come to the house, never showed up. And when Perverted Justice looked back at the chat logs and profile to try and piece together why they didn't, they ended up making a shocking discovery. They were able to dig around and piece together the actual identity of the predator who had attempted to solicit child pornography from who they believed was a 13-year-old boy. It was Lewis William Conrad Jr., the Rockstar Chief Prosecuting District Attorney in the neighboring town of Rockwall. He was a legend in that area of the country and described as one of the smartest DAs in Texas. What Hansen and the TCAT crew would do next changed the entire trajectory of the show's success in their careers. And this is where, I think, the line of ethics is genuinely, undeniably crossed for the first time, and the criticisms of creating news become severely valid. The Murphy PD had enough info to go and make the arrest. He had solicited a minor for illicit materials, which is a felony in Texas and many other states. They had him dead to rights. But Hansen wanted it to be part of the show and he and NBC had the Murphy police wrapped around their fingers, willing to do whatever they wanted. Hansen, his film crew, and the Murphy PD raced to the residence of Lewis Conrad. Hansen attempted to knock on the door and confront Lewis, but there was no answer. Hansen yelled into the house for him and could hear movement inside, but still no answer. With probable cause to enter his home, the Murphy PD broke down the door and entered. Two police officers went inside and searched for Conrad. They eventually ran into him in a hallway of the house. He said one thing, I'm not gonna hurt anybody. And then he turned a gun on himself and pulled the trigger. So it's already far enough that Hansen inserted himself and his crew into this arrest, right? Of course, after Conrad essentially committed suicide on camera, they scrapped the episode, right? Nope. Dateline aired the Lose Conrad Jr. segment and told the whole story from start to finish. The episode aired in February of 2007 and was just as, if not more popular than previous episodes. They aired three more episodes after that throughout 2007. At this point, Hansen was literally a megastar and a genuine celebrity far outreaching the fame of any other TV news reporter in history. He regularly appeared on talk shows, wrote a best-selling book, and even got a parody treatment on an episode of South Park. Tonight, an inside look at Tourette Syndrome. I'm Chris Hansen. I'm Chris Hansen. Uh, Mr. Hansen, I'm afraid I can't do the show. Why not? My, uh, my grandma just died, so I have to go to Memphis. 
That's not true. My grandma's fan. Why don't you have a seat? No, I just need to get home. I'm not doing the show. Go ahead and take a seat. But I'm not going to do this. Take a seat right over there. But this is where the other shoe dropped for TCAP. You see, John Roach, one of the head DAs in Murphy, investigated the November house sting and Conrad's suicide. What the DA's office discovered was that the Murphy PD did absolutely zero police work on the entire sting. They completely relied on perverted justice with no questions asked. They also discovered that the way perverted justice convinced the Murphy police to raid Conrad's house with a full TV crew was by claiming that Conrad had been deleting evidence of his crimes off his MySpace page, which gave the police imperative to act fast and arrest him before there wasn't enough evidence to arrest. This was a complete lie. Conrad hadn't used his MySpace page in months. John Roach dismissed all 25 cases of men arrested in the Murphy bus citing lack of evidence and misconduct by police making the arrest illegal because they didn't have warrants. By this time, the media had caught wind of the controversy behind the Conrad sting, and it was all over rival news headlines. However vile and reprehensible he was, an NBC show had literally caused a man's suicide. This did not look good for the network, for perverted justice, or for Hansen. Advertisers started pulling out of the show en masse. Conrad's sister sued NBC for $105 million, claiming they had caused his wrongful death. They settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. TCAP's audience shares none of this criticism. This is all coming from the media and law enforcement. TCAP fans don't give a rat's ass if a child predator killed himself. And honestly, it really is kind of hard to mourn the death of somebody like that or really go into the weeds of the ethical quandary it represents. So the viewer apathy towards TCAP's wrongdoing is understandable. However, Despite the popularity and fan support, the show was officially canceled in 2008. Many speculate that ending the show was most likely part of the settlement agreement with Conrad's sister because it came out of nowhere during a time of seemingly great ratings. The Murphy police chief, Billy Myrick, as well as the Murphy city manager are both fired over the debacle, so this whole thing really didn't end well for anyone involved. Despite all the good that TCAP and Perverted Justice did, and regardless of any criticisms or ethical grays, from my perspective, arguing that they didn't objectively do a great public service is literally insane. In Xavier Von Erich's final flourish of towing the line between altruistic hero and self-serving troll, he put all the money PJ ever earned from To Catch a Predator into a nonprofit called Perverted Justice Foundation Inc., promising to use the funds to create and develop software that would train police and parents on how to spot online predators. However, in reality, most of the money went to paying the salaries of Perverted Justice's employees. Xavier then got married and disappeared off the face of the map and the internet. Perverted Justice was eventually shut down in 2019, and the website became an archive of all the chat logs that they had ever released. The organization claimed that the world had grown out of the need for their services, as the advent of social media has made the landscape of online predators too large for them to be able to handle. And now, most law enforcement organizations have specific cybercrime units dedicated to dealing with these types of crimes. I think it's hilarious that Xavier Von Eric kissed a girl and was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Seriously. He was like, oh, wait. Hmm. All right. I'm abandoning all of this. I didn't realize that this was this good. I could, I could touch on some boobies. I'm just going to do that. Bye. Bye, internet. Bye, kayfabe pedophile hunting crew. In the end, Von Erich, as well as the whole of Perverted Justice, became the most extreme example of the problematic fave. They accomplished something so objectively morally righteous, and the mere thought of anything like this even remotely happening to one of your own children, only for this baggy pants and hockey jersey wearing, neck bearded ass, Mountain Dew code red swigging uber troll to swoop out of nowhere and save them from a lifetime of trauma, is enough for a gust of pride to swell up in your chest and tears to well in your eyes. 
And yet, everything about the reason that they did what they did is so steeped in ethical murkiness that it's just hard to view them as fully in the realm of lawful good or even chaotic good. Chaotic neutral with leaning towards good, maybe? But that's where the story ends for perverted justice, at least for now. So how was Hansen going to fare without the aid of the vigilant watchdog group that was actually the brains behind his operation? Well, NBC had a problem. Hansen was their star quarterback, their golden child. He was what the people wanted. Moving forward without him would be like Breaking Bad just randomly writing off Walter White in the fourth season and hoping that people, for some reason, still tuned in. But they had to steer clear of anything involving busting child predators because of the controversy. But the reason that people loved Hansen was because he busted child predators. It was a real catch-22 for the network in Dateline. So what did they do? Split the difference, baby! Dateline began attempting to capitalize off of the popularity of TCAP, but without the P. They launched new investigative segments with Hansen like To Catch a Con Man or To Catch an ID Thief. Turns out, the schadenfreude of watching a disgusting child predator get exposed and grilled was really a key component of TCAP, and these new segments didn't do nearly as well. Hansen was still considered a hero because of his reputation from TCAP, but people slowly stopped paying attention to him, and his work was suffering as well. It became less about breaking outstanding stories and more about just trying to repackage the TCAP formula, but with less ethical or PR risk. He was running stings on credit card scammers and other petty thieves, and people just didn't seem to get as fully on board with humiliating poor people trying to make ends meet as they could with child predators. But the problems were only beginning for Hansen, and it wouldn't be long before he was being asked to have a seat. No, he's not a child predator. That's too clickbaity for even us. songs that he only knows from his planet that humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Do uh, you by any chance happen to have any more of those uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hillsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a creator-owned series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, 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 great. Cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll take whatever fifty. Really? Wow! I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them. There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. <laughs> In 2011, Chris Hansen was no longer the Chris Hansen we knew a few years ago. He wasn't riding a massive wave of success and popularity, but his predator lecturing mug was still worth something, 
and most people, when they saw it, were filled with warm feelings of respect and admiration. So NBC was keeping him around to capitalize off of that as much as possible. That year, he was sent to Florida to cover the disappearance of Jimmy Trindade. This might have almost seemed like he was coming full circle with his career from his early beginnings watching the Hoffa disappearance. But after all he'd been through and the heights he'd climbed, this was a definitive downgrade. However, while there, he met a fellow reporter, Kristen Cadell, from WPTV Channel 5, an NBC affiliate. And we're just going to cut to the chase here because there didn't seem to be any gradual process of making it to this point. No moral backslide, no long descent into hitting rock bottom and doing this out of desperation. It seemed to just happen and come naturally to the reporter. Hansen hit it off with Cadell, and that very night, they checked into a hotel and began a months-long affair. Hansen quietly broke things off with Cadell before returning back to his Connecticut home to be with his family again. But the reason we know about this is because five days after the Dateline segment on Trindade aired, the National Enquirer broke a story about Hansen's affair. How did they find out? They got an anonymous tip and then had a photographer follow them and get photographic evidence. Celebrity affairs are usually scandalous, but the media coverage of this story was particularly strange. Perhaps in some cathartic fit of vindication after years of jealousy at the success of TCAP, news organizations across the country ran this story with headlines framing it as the tables being turned on Hansen, as if there was some kind of sick irony to a man who was known for catching people doing illicit things on camera and exposing them, being caught on camera doing something illicit and being exposed. Which I guess is some pretty low-hanging fruit of how you'd approach presenting the story, but really? How is this anywhere even remotely close to the crimes that predators on TCAP had committed? The media presented the story as if the king of predator busting was himself a predator all along, but that's just insane. So much for the journalistic standards they were touting a few years ago in response to TCAP. Hansen denied the affair outright, and his wife believed and stuck by him, but there was immediately fallout. Hansen was close to being up for a promotion to anchor at Dateline, and despite the fact that he never really had much interest in the anchor position and wanted to be out in the field, his career had cooled off enough and he felt like the time was right to slide into a cushy anchor job. However, in the wake of the affair scandal, the promotion was put on hiatus. Hansen continued to try and recapture his success, doing more shows exposing small time and petty crooks, all the while getting more desperate and shameless as his personal and public life spiraled out of control. The worst, most ethically gray moment in this stage of his career is when he and his team find out the owner of a preschool has a criminal past. They ambush him at the preschool under the guise of doing a slice-of-life puff piece about the life of a child educator, expose his criminal record, and Hansen grills him on the perceived unethical nature of him failing to disclose his criminal record to staff or parents at the school. 20 years prior to the segment, the man had been arrested for battery. He was turned down by the state to inherit his mother's childcare business, but made such a good case that they decided to let him, and he'd had a spotless record ever since turning his life around. The interview just feels gross. The dude has rehabilitated his life and worked hard to rebuild himself and create a business, and Chris Hansen essentially outs him and ruins his career for a feather in his cap and a segment on TV. Simpson and his wife run Storybook Ranch in Tampa started by Simpson's mother 32 years ago. Back in the 1990s, Simpson was arrested for battery twice. Both times, he served probation. I wanted to ask you if you yourself have a criminal history. No, I do not. You do not? No. You've never pleaded guilty to any crime? Nothing. Never? No. Well, then what is this? That looks like a photograph of me when uh, I was... Wrongfully accused of battery. Wrongfully accused. Mm -hmm. That was a whole different time in my life. I was a kid. Simpson said we weren't being fair. Said he's been running the center without incident for 13 years. 
and I met the requirements, I had to jump through a lot of hoops, Mr. Hansen, to get this position. I understand that. Now, but the more I tried to ask questions, the more heated the conversation got. This well, is a waste of my time. We have done nothing but provide exemplary service to the, the, the people of this area for 32 okay. years. And you guys come in here with this and wasting my time? This is how we find these things out. This is nonsense. You're the evil and you're the demon. I watched all your shows to catch the predator and all that. You are a piece of well, okay? I came here to give you a chance Look, to talk about this. You can go and you can up a rope and you can pay money to get any information else from me. Okay? I'm embarrassed for you. You're a slug. But we're You're a slug. We're happy to leave then. Thank you. All of you, get the hell off my property. Good day. Based on this confrontation, Hansen went to the city school board and attempted to get the man fired based on the fact that he'd lost his cool and yelled during the ambush, and therefore, he might be unstable and volatile around children as well. Hansen's next stop on his magical mystery tour of fucking over hardworking people trying to hustle to make ends meet was a segment in which he catfishes local New York marijuana dealers and confronts them about dealing illegal drugs. This segment especially feels tone deaf now in 2020 when marijuana is largely decriminalized in several states. But the worst part is that Hansen gets completely owned by the guy he's attempting to expose, and the segment turns into a humble weed dealer educating a rich white man about the realities of street life in New York City. Selling marijuana in large amounts is a felony in New York, but that doesn't seem to bother Atkins in the slightest. I'm not ashamed of what I do because, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of hypocrisy involved. And we know the politics. Nobody wants to touch it, but everyone smoked it. People who are going to abuse drugs, and, and they're going to do what they want, and it makes it look bad. But I can call off four people, you know what I'm saying, that, that I deal with who have cancer, who are wholeheartedly great, honest people, that the health care is, is, is too much for them. But you want to get out. Well, I want to get out from the perspective of, of having to watch my back to do it. You know right. what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm getting a little Like, do you have to carry a gun? Do you worry no, about somebody robbing you? No. Or? I, I deliver to people who are down in this area. You right. know, doorman buildings, co-ops, people who own penthouses. This sounds less like a tough-nosed investigative reporter getting to the heart of a story, and more like an out-of-touch dad having his kid explain TikTok to him. So Hansen, everything, everything comes back to dad energy with Chris Hansen. Yep, all the time. He's disappointed dad, out of touch dad, uh, pre-divorce, lonely, trying to have sex with a fellow reporter dad. Like he's just every version of dad. Chris Hansen. He is all dads. We are dad. We are. We are I am we dad. Are, we are many. We're dad. Dads of the nation. Is that the second time that POD has been referenced on this podcast? Well, yeah, the POD sounds stands for payable upon, upon dad. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Fuck. How far does this rabbit hole go? So Hanson was really in an uncertain place with NBC because nothing he did seemed to be sticking in the same way that TCAP did. And then came the final blow. Kristen Cadell, the woman he'd allegedly had an affair with during his months-long stint covering the Jimmy Trindade case in Florida, decided after two years to come forward with her story. On July 27th of 2013, the National Enquirer published a tell-all expose by Cadell, detailing the true reality of their affair. According to her, Chris had coerced her into a relationship by telling her that his marriage to his wife at the time, Mary, was on the rocks and basically for show. The ring he wore was just to keep up appearances. Recently getting out of a divorce herself, she fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and was sure for months that he was planning on finally leaving his wife for her. Hansen even spoke with her parents on the phone at one point. She also had tons of photographic proof. 
Once he was done with the Trindade case and had to return home, not only did he abruptly end things with Kristen, he also urged her to keep quiet about the relationship. When the Inquirer leaked the story about their affair, she lied to her employees and said it never happened. She was subsequently fired. All the while, Hansen suffered virtually no negative repercussions from the affair. For the next two years, Cadell's life and career were essentially ruined. Nobody would hire her because of the controversy, and she was unable to find any more work in journalism. But now the tables had turned because, as a result of this expose, NBC made the all-too-easy and probably inevitable anyway decision to fire Hansen. They ended their contract with him, saying publicly that the split was amicable, but in reality, they just grown tired of the controversy. Cadell, however, pretty much immediately got her first job in journalism since being fired in 2011 working for ABC. She went on to win an Emmy for her reporting. The year following his firing from NBC, Hansen was completely out of pocket. Nobody really knows what he was doing during this period. He became a ghost. He became estranged from his wife Mary, and they eventually divorced in 2018. Although, tons of details, including some court documents from their divorce proceedings, show them leaving at different addresses long before the expose was released, indicating that their marriage might have been over for longer than anybody knew publicly. In 2014, Hansen racked up $57,000 in credit card debt, doing God knows what. That same year, he also gets hired to host a show called Killer Instinct for Investigation Discovery, which is supposed to be an in-depth exploration of history's most gruesome murders. But it doesn't resonate either and only gets two seasons. Perhaps having finally let it sink in that his days on network television were over, on April 25th of 2015, Hansen launched a Kickstarter to fund a new series of Predator Stings. He was met with a warm welcome. At this point, the controversy from his affair had died down, and he was also communicating through the internet without the filter of network executives and rival critics to stand between him and viewers. And remember, the actual TCAP fans had no issue whatsoever with any of TCAP, perverted justice, or Hansen's supposed ethical issues. They just wanted to see Hansen take down some perverts. This is the beginning of his weird exploitation of catching pedophiles. He uses the have a seat right over there catchphrase in the Kickstarter video in a joking way, which feels weird but is nothing compared to what he eventually becomes. The campaign met its goal of $75,000 and ultimately earned nearly $89,000. It was a success. But isn't that kind of crazy? At the end of the day, To Catch a Predator was Perverted Justice's show. They developed the technique, they did all of the work of luring the predators, and they cooperated with police to make arrests. Literally all Hansen ever did was pop out and try to interview the predators. Undoubtedly, his contribution as a charismatic figurehead was valuable for the show's success, but how could he do this on his own without the help of perverted justice? The Kickstarter campaign also promised several perks for donators, namely Chris Hansen-related merchandise like coffee mugs, t-shirts, etc., with an estimated delivery of December 2015. In July of 2015, production on Hansen's new series of investigations started, but he goes completely dark for the rest of the year. December comes and goes without any perks being delivered or any update from the Kickstarter page. In February of 2016, Hansen comes back to say that he's finished shooting the series of investigations and is now pitching them to networks. Still no word of the rewards that were supposed to be delivered in December. In April of 2016, the Kickstarter page gives another update promising the show and the rewards are coming soon. Also the same month, Hansen is named as the new host of Crime Watch Daily, a nationally syndicated true crime series, and Hansen reveals that his crowdfunded investigations are going to air as part of that show. Here's a snippet of the press release announcing Hansen joining as host of the show. There isn't a bigger, more respected name in crime reporting than Chris Hansen. We hunted down Chris the way he hunts down predators to take this job. We are excited to take... That's such a weird way to phrase that. I mean, that's... What the fuck does that mean? Like, they just waited in his kitchen? 
And then we're like, what are you doing here today? And Chris Hansen's like, I live here. And they're like, no, but really, what are you? I live here. Do you want a job? I guess. Yes, please. For God's sake, please. I have seven Rolexes. We hunted down Chris the way he hunts down predators to take this job. We are excited to have him lead our amazing team of correspondents to build on our success and to take Crime Watch Daily to the next level. Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't it strange how Hansen and people surrounding him have started just casually using the iconography of a hard-hitting news program about catching child predators in the act of making goofy puns? It consistently bumps me in learning about any of this stuff. How he eventually, you know, became this self-parody. And it's really weird to me that he just says his little catchphrases as like a fun little thing. Like you were referencing confronting a pedophile who is attempting to rape somebody. And you're just being like, have a seat over there. Ah, remember that? Remember that from that thing? Remember that? Yeah, you remember that. At this point, the Kickstarter backers are starting to get frustrated. Not only about the lack of delivery of the rewards, but just the complete lack of acknowledgement of the issue by Hansen. The new season of Crime Watch Daily with Hansen's Stinghouse segments airs. And people love it. It feels exactly like classic TCAP, with the exact same setup of a watchdog group, this time one called Tetridcore, a decidedly less troubling name, cooperating with law enforcement to lure predators to a decoy house, where an actor portraying a minor welcomes them in only to be confronted by Chris motherfucking Hansen. People love the show, but they still want to know where the hell the rewards are. Where the fuck are my perks, bro? This is my nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but at such a larger scale, because it's just like a rabid fan base that it, it kind of goes back to that Bella Thorne conversation of like the way that those Disney stars like rip the bandaid of this weird culturally agreed upon kayfabe of how pure they are. And they're just like, I do not want to live in the fucking like box of that. So I'm just going to like do the craziest shit I can think of so that I can redefine people's expectations of me. Ultimately, at the end of the day, people would be disappointed if you were, weren't able to deliver on what you've promised in one of your Kickstarters or whatever. But like they'd understand. But Chris Hansen, these people are like, you are a saint. You are literally like a god among men. So when he doesn't follow through on delivering you a coffee mug, you're just like, what is happening? Why is this happening? In September of 2017, two years after delivery expectation, Hansen bought $13,000 worth of merchandise from a Connecticut vendor, but his check bounced. The vendor complains and he issues another check seven months later. It bounces again. Chris apologizes and asks for more time. He sells a boat to pay for it, or at least he claims he does, but he never issues a check. A warrant is put out for his arrest and he turns himself in. He's arrested on fraud charges. As it turns out, Hansen is in deep, deep debt, like millions of dollars in debt. After his arrest is made public, January 18th, 2018, the Daily Mail posts an article revealing Hansen's debt. $58,000 to American Express, $126,000 to TD Bank, $15,000 to Ally Financial, and over $1 million to his mortgage lender, U.S. Bank Trust. He also owed $205,000 in back taxes. The Mail acquired this information from court complaints. He's eventually bailed out and figures out a way to cover cost of the bounce check and the charges are eventually dropped. What was he buying? Tons of turtlenecks, bro. Didn't you see him in that... That podcast interview? He's so many turtlenecks. 
So many turtlenecks. So many turtlenecks. I'm Chris Hansen, and I wear really bad suits and turtlenecks. Yeah, so many turtlenecks, so many fucking, what even are what those? What if he just, like... Bro- Brooks Brothers suits? What if he just really was obsessed with, like, getting his hair cut, and he's just in, like, millions of dollars of debt, because he gets his hair cut, like, every two days? He's like, I discovered that I feel like I'm living my best truth with a fresh haircut. And I'm very self-conscious when it grows even the slightest bit. So now that I have disposable income for my massively successful show, I get a haircut every day from only the finest of salons. I'm Chris Hansen. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we talk about haircuts. Finally, Hansen is eventually evicted from his New York apartment for not paying rent for five months. Worth it. Five months of the greatest haircuts of my life. So how does this happen? How does a successful, famous news reporter with a massively popular show get this deep in debt to the point where they land in jail on fraud charges? The answer is simple. He got very used to the lifestyle that TCAP in its ratings heyday offered him. Once the money dried up, he had become dependent on that lifestyle and financially overextended himself to maintain it with the hopes that his next big tear in success was just around the corner and he could make up for all the spending he was doing. Unfortunately, that tear never came. Having exhausted all other efforts to make his big comeback, Hansen then did what any desperate, downtrodden, delusional sad sack would do. He started a YouTube channel. At some point in 2017, the YouTube channel Hansen vs. Predator popped up and started posting a cocktail of incredibly low-quality rips of old TCAP episodes, the Crime Watch Daily segments, random talk show appearances he'd made over the years, and even clips from all the times he'd been parodied in cartoons. He didn't own any of this content, and fellow YouTube content creators were quick to point out that Hansen was committing several acts of copyright infringement on a daily basis. However, at this point, the YouTube community has welcomed him with open arms, and he's viewed as a veteran hero that they're all lucky to count amongst their ranks. Even if he doesn't quite understand how YouTube works and is giving off major technologically incompetent dad vibes. Always dad stuff. All dad. Always. All dad. All dad. In addition to recycling stolen clips... Hansen starts running live streams where he discusses current true crime stories. He's being helped by a man named Vincent Nicotra, who is a self-proclaimed software developer and website designer who was offered to run the technical side of Hansen's YouTube channel and live streams in exchange for exposure and the ability to advertise his company, Venn Interactive Media, all over Hansen's social media pages. These live streams are essentially just multiple hour-long ramblings about random crime news stories along with endless, repetitive promises that the new batches of Predator investigations are coming soon. Months and months pass, and he keeps giving empty promises about new investigations while continuing to just exclusively post old stolen clips and run these meandering live streams. In one of his most egregious rip-off schemes of what we'll call the phase of his social media influencer career, he starts selling a subscription service on his official website. For $10 a month or $85 a year, you'd have access to any of these new investigations as they were released. But literally in the entire life of the subscription service, Hansen never released a single piece of new content, except one time when they released an unaired clip from the old Crime Watch Daily investigations that they decided not to run at the time because the Predator was 19 years old. 
So possibly thousands of people were paying for this service for months and months in hopes of getting access to new Hansen vs Predator content and never got a single thing for it. They also never got a refund. And this is when fans started losing faith in Hansen, and when the so-called drama channels got involved. Notable YouTube content creators with varying sizes of audiences started posting videos criticizing Hansen's financial practices, and generally commenting on the seemingly bait-and-switch nature of his entire YouTube content strategy. That's me in the corner, losing my Chris Hansen. In retaliation, Hansen and Nikotra used the copyright takedown system on YouTube to get these critical videos removed, and in some cases, entire channels deleted. The way this works is that, on YouTube, if you see that somebody has stolen and used your copyrighted content, you can file a complaint with YouTube using an automated form, reporting that the channels had stolen from you. This is a great tool for any creator out there that notices their content has been shamelessly stolen and reposted by somebody else. However, the whole system is almost completely automated, very indiscriminate, and the actions the platform will take are very drastic. So Hansen and Nikotra were filing complaints against videos claiming that they were violating Hansen's copyright when, in reality, they were just videos criticizing Hansen. But since the process is largely automated, the system would just believe the complaints were genuine and take action against the allegedly offending channel. YouTube would delete videos, take away a channel's ability to monetize videos, or even just delete the channel altogether. And not only would this automated system blindly take unfair action against these channels simply exercising their right to free speech and the ability to criticize public figures, but also, it's infamously near impossible to actually get a human being at YouTube to review a situation with their actual human eyes. So if somebody is abusing the system like this, sometimes the victim is just basically screwed. The whole incompetent system solely relies on the social contract that people just won't abuse it in this way, but they often do. And yeah, this is this is like a common tactic. It's weird. It's weird. There's going to be more of this coming up um, in the future, but through Hansen's sort of association with people that he places trust in to work with him and do these technological things that he doesn't understand, he ends up multiple times throughout this whole YouTube debacle doing these really inappropriate, predatory, and sometimes illegal things that are common tactics of scammers and online hostile hackers and things like that. And this is a thing that is done by people whenever they want to launch a sort of takedown campaign of a YouTuber that they don't like. They'll exploit the copyright takedown system to send multiple copyright takedowns of a page and be like, this person stole this video from me. And they'll do it for like 20 videos. And because of the really inefficient and kind of non-functional way that, that YouTube sort of operates with the system, they can get channels deleted completely erroneously. And the channel will be freaking out and be like, I'm getting all these strikes and I can't get YouTube to respond to my emails and I can't get anyone to actually acknowledge this problem and, you know, notice that I'm being unfairly targeted. And then a channel will get deleted because of this. And then, you know, nothing happens that sometimes they can't ever get YouTube to actually acknowledge them. And sometimes they do, but then it's kind of too late because they've already deleted the channel. And I guess the way that YouTube does it, they, they don't archive it. So once it's deleted, it's just gone, I guess. Another sort of famous person that has employed this tactic in the past is... Poppy, who basically did the same thing. There was a bunch of these commentary channels that were releasing these videos that were critical of her. And her team basically did this, where they issued a bunch of copyright strikes to these channels that got them the videos taken down or sometimes 
channels deleted, which is, you know, just illegally exploiting a copyright system to silence detractors. But honestly, you know, the, as, you know, as we'll continue to talk about, I think the slippery slope on Chris Hansen's role in this situation gets steeper and steeper as time goes on. But now, as in, I also think later on, a lot of this stuff has to do with the fact that I just don't think Chris Hansen, like, understood what was happening. I think he's just literally just an old dude who just, he just didn't know what this was. He didn't know what this Vincent guy was doing. He had no idea that he was like exploiting the system in this way. He just kind of was like, can you do something about these people who are criticizing me? And then he's like, oh, I'll I'll take care of it. And he did this. You know, if anything, he was complicit in it. But I just didn't, I genuinely don't think he understood what was going on. And this is what happened to several channels on YouTube. Some losing their channels altogether with no action taken by YouTube to restore them. Hansen received major backlash from this and took to his live stream to explain his actions. All right. So moving on to uh, another topic that's uh, been brewing this week. Uh, to those of you who follow Hansen versus Predators.com and, and the YouTube channel here, it's kind of an odd thing that happened last week. And this is the best as I can figure how all this started. Last week, I was in Toronto, as many of you know, because I, I posted on social media from there, working on an unrelated uh, uh, television project, uh, unrelated to Predators. And, and I mentioned I was there, and I did last week's uh, show from there. And a request came in from somebody who, I guess I don't really know them, and sometimes it's hard to know who people are because they have two, three, four aliases uh, online, asking if, if I was going to be available after the live broadcast to, to meet up. And, and I guess later I learned through Vincent possibly sign a book and, and you know, it just didn't work out. And, and I guess the people or that person and some other people were upset about that. And they went to the, the YouTube channel here and they, they did what is called a copyright strike. This person put a strike out. On, on a piece of material that is my face, my image, my voice, my name. Um, and so there we were. And, and there was a lot of furor that built up in a, in a small section of, of the, the TCAP, the Predator community, or the Predator uh, investigation follower community, not the actual Predators. And then there was another story. And all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at each other, Vincent and I was like, you know, what's behind this? And, and people started to get angry that, you know, on the website, we haven't uh, been quick enough for new comment, uh, content rather, and, and uh, um, you know, accusations that, that, um, that we were striking back at people because they're being critical of us, which is the farthest from the truth. I mean, you know, while I'll defend anybody's right, to, First Amendment right, to say whatever they want, whether it's unpleasant or not about me. And it, and it just got really mean and there were false accusations and things said. So, you know, facing these two um, copyright strikes, you know, we struck back and it was, it was an effort, honestly, to protect the property, to protect what we were doing from, from whatever was motivating these people to do this. However, in reality, the strikes weren't coming from other YouTube creators manually filing complaints. They were automated copyright strikes triggered by Hansen's shameless and constant use of stolen video clips that were being detected by YouTube's digital rights manager. And, you know, this is another thing where it's like, I can't believe how little Chris Hansen knows about this because, you know, he's he's not 
technologically savvy. He doesn't understand computers or YouTube or any of these things, but he has been working in the entertainment industry for decades. But the thing, the thing that, that Chris Hansen sort of talks about and the thing that he thinks is he thinks he has the right to post these clips on his YouTube channel because it's him and his face and he owns the copyright to his face. And so he thinks that because he's in episodes of TCAP, that he that he owns the rights to them. And it's like, how do you Sorry, think, bro. How Sorry, do you bro. think that's, that? That's not how that works. Sorry. I, it's so bizarre to me that he thinks that. That's not like some new, like you have to be like a young tech savvy person. That's like copyright law, which has existed for fucking hundreds of years. At this point, Hansen's fans began to lose interest. He's been on YouTube for months, promising exciting new content just around the corner but has literally never delivered anything more than rambling live streams about news stories Hansen has nothing to do with. His views start to tank. Then, Hansen strikes a vein of gold in the YouTube ecosystem when he one day decides to cover an interesting news story from directly within the YouTube content creator space itself. It's a story that not only plays right into the tight-knit community of YouTube viewers, but it also has a salacious twist and child predator angle that Hansen is most famous for. Hansen decides to invite a woman named Blair White onto one of his live streams to discuss Onision. Who is Onision? He was a massively popular YouTube content creator who, in early 2019, along with his husband, Kai, was accused of sexually grooming a 15-year-old fan and engaging in sexual misconduct with her. At the age of 19, Kai, who at the time identified as a bisexual woman, Lainey, had started an online friendship with the 14-year-old Sarah. Eventually, at the behest of Onision, Sarah was flown out to stay with the couple, and then, after staying with them for a few months, left. A few years later, in 2019, Sarah comes forward and says that Onision and Kai engaged in a romantic, sexual three-way relationship with her when she was 15, and had sexually groomed her over a period of years. When Hansen found out about this, he obviously immediately sunk his teeth into it and started reaching out to survivors, witnesses, and anybody else who might have any information on the case. His first interview he conducted was with Blair, who was a political commentator who had spoken with some victims and wanted to tell their stories about Onision. This became Hansen's new focus. Every live stream he does becomes about his quote-unquote Onision investigation, which is essentially just him having sit-down interviews over Zoom with people close to the story. He interviewed Repsion, which is another YouTuber who had been following Onision for years and publicly commenting on his troubling behavior. Shiloh, Onision's former fiancé who alleged that he abused her during their relationship. Alea Karina, a friend of another alleged victim of Onision, and eventually Sarah herself. The interviews showed a huge boost to Hansen's viewership, but he received immediate criticisms from people who say he was exploiting the stories of the survivors for views. Do, do you know anything about this? Do you, like, no, were you aware I, I, I of Onision or anything? Story, no. I, I was aware of him by name only. I knew that there was a YouTuber named Onision who was in some kind of controversy and, and had basically been canceled. And that was the extent of what I knew about it. But, um, you know, we could have had a whole chapter, like in the same way that we explored perverted justice, we could have like had acts that were specifically like, this is the Anision story. And then an act that was like, this is the Davi vanity story. And I almost kind of contemplated doing that just to make this like a really definitive episode of this whole saga. But ultimately what I decided was this episode is already deals with some dark territory and imagery and we're talking about some really dark stuff. And this Onision story and the Davi Vanity story that we're going to talk about later are dark. 
And because it wasn't the central focus of the episode, I just didn't want to get into the weeds of how horrible and fucked up these stories were and have to take us and the listeners through that journey because we're already talking about child abuse and all these things. And these stories are graphic, but if you are interested and you want to find out more about, you know, these stories, they, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube specifically dealing with these two stories and, you know, long story short, Onision is, he hasn't been sort of formally charged with any kind of crime. He hasn't been arrested. Nobody's ever been able to figure out a way to get anything to like legally stick to him. But it's pretty clear from the information that's available that he is just a horrible, manipulative child predator, or at least a, a person who has at many times sexually groomed underage women to be in this weird kind of cuckold relationship with his, at the time his wife, but then eventually his husband, where at the time what what was his wife had come out as bi. And so he publicly in YouTube videos, like this isn't just something they discussed. They would like make vlogs about this, but he was basically like, I, in this weird, like trying to be woke kind of way, he was like, I think that it would be okay for, for Lainey to have a girlfriend and I support that. And if she wants to experience that and experiment with having relationships with women, I'm not going to stand in the way of that because I think that she should be able to express herself in that way. And I don't get jealous about it because I feel like a woman could bring her things that I wouldn't be able to bring her. And so I am in support of it. And so he's like kind of trying to be this like woke feminist ally or whatever. But in reality, he just wants her to hook up with a girl because he gets off on it. And it goes to the point where he actually like pressures her. Like she doesn't even want to have a, she like, she acknowledges these feelings, but she doesn't want to have a girlfriend. She doesn't want to do these things. She's just like, I am attracted to women as well, but we're married and I'm, and I want to be in a monogamous relationship. And he actually pressures her into getting into a relationship with um, some other woman. And then he eventually uses it as a, as a opportunity to ingratiate himself. And then he will engage in a sexual relationship with the woman. And the first time they do it, it's still weird and psychologically fucked up and probably very abusive, but the woman was technically 18. So it wasn't breaking a law. But then the second time that they do it, it's a 14-year-old girl. Despite the initial wave of relevance the Anusian coverage afforded Hansen, he almost immediately saw a backlash to what is being perceived as his attempting to insert himself into a situation he doesn't understand or truly care about and exploit it to grow his YouTube channel. All of the interview subjects except Shiloh start speaking out on social media, saying that Hansen and Nakotra coached them before the interviews to focus on details that aren't necessarily true. Hansen starts trying to shift the narrative to be about Onision starting an internet cult, even though nobody actually believes this to be true. Hansen asks leading questions during the interviews and is criticized for using his credibility and influence to intimidate these young girls on a live stream into saying that they do think Onision is a cult leader simply because Hansen thinks it would be a juicier story. With criticism mounting and Hansen attempting to do damage control, his YouTube channel, Hansen vs. Predator, suddenly disappears. Hansen claims that it was deleted by YouTube because they had banned any use of the word Predator on their platform, but some watchdogs dug into the situation and discovered that the channel had been deleted due to numerous copyright strikes from Hansen and Nakotra uploading stolen clips. 
Hansen created a new channel called Have a Seat with Chris Hansen and continued pushing the Anision as a cult leader narrative. But people on the platform are largely starting to see him as a complete joke. At this point, criticism towards Hansen is strong, and several popular YouTubers basically create an entire cottage industry on making what fucked up thing did Chris Hansen do today videos. Now that the eyes of all these watchdog YouTubers are on Hansen, they start paying attention to every move he and his team, which is basically just Vincent Nicotra, make. Eventually, several screenshots of Vincent making extremely inappropriate, ableist, and racist jokes on Twitter are brought to light. Vincent claims he was hacked, but nobody is buying it. One of the main YouTubers leading the charge of outing Vincent as a hateful bigot is Wes Most, who happens to be black, which leads to this text exchange between Vincent and Hansen. Vincent. Chris, this has gone far enough with these trolls. Sorry to ruin your New Year's Eve, but I'm taking matter into my own hands with these fucking N-word trolls. That's right, I said in all caps, N-word, because these troll is a fucking N-word. This is not your problem for a discussion or debate. My family is attacked with the queue in the middle of the attack where the second A would be. Maybe if I got fucking paid, I would be more calm and talk to a shrink about this bullshit. To which Hansen responds, Whoa. <laughs> it's so funny to me. If you saw this screenshot, the screenshot of this text exchange where he's this, this like racist fucking screed is just typed in all caps with all these emotional typos and then just Chris Hansen just goes whoa <laughs> after this Vincent goes on to dox several of these people criticizing him including Wes Most doxing being releasing illegitimately obtained private information about a person publicly on the internet, usually in an effort to prompt people to harass them in some way. These same watchdogs that he refers to as trolls also end up outing him and his company as a total sham. Vincent offers selling certain types of software to help with building websites and running live streams that he claims to have developed himself. But after doing some digging, these YouTubers discovered that he had just purchased the code for software off of some open source software sites and passed it off as his own. At this point, Hansen fires Vincent. As you know, I've recently been reviewing the actions online and in person of my web producer, Vincent Nicotra. Things he's said and done without my permission and without my knowledge. I've come to the conclusion that I can't condone much of what he's said and done, and I can no longer work with him in any way going forward. He's not going to be involved in any further projects. Great, right? Vincent ended up being a terrible person, but Hansen didn't know that at first, and... When his impropriety came to light, Hansen swiftly severed ties with him. Well, that would be all well and fine if not for the next person that Hansen decides to partner up with in his place. The question I have about all of this, this like revolving door of all these people that are helping, and by all these people, I mean Vincent and the next guy. Uh, they're, so if they're not getting paid, is Chris Hansen, are these videos monetized and Chris Hansen is just keeping the money? Is there just not a lot of money? Like... I mean, I doubt there's a lot of money because it's really hard to make any significant cash from YouTube now. Like in the past couple of years, YouTubers can't make money off of their videos anymore. It's like you can, so many YouTubers have showed, like done videos where they're like, this is how much money I made from getting 50 million down, uh, 50 million views. I made $2,000 and all this stuff. Um, so I doubt he made significant amount of money. Uh, but I also, yeah, I also don't, I don't think he's 
paid him. I think I think the 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 exchange was you do all this stuff for me, you run my live streams, you run my YouTube channel and my website, and in exchange you get to associate yourself with me. And I'm sure, especially to this Vincent Nicotra guy, to be like you're you're basically my perverted justice. You are the lone gunman, like behind the scenes person running Chris Hansen's operation. So I think that was the allure that he gave to these people. After the firing of Vincent, Hansen announced lawyer Mike Morse as joining his team to work on investigations. Whoa, not only did Hansen ditch this racist, incompetent asshole, but he also leveled up his ability to investigate predators properly by working with a lawyer. Uh, Mike Morse, at the time of being hired, and still currently to this day, is embroiled in several different lawsuits featuring accusations of a sexual assault from multiple women. Yep, Hansen hired a literal alleged predator to help him bust predators. And honestly, he's never really answered to this. This this seems to be a weird elephant in the room where, you know, Mike Morse's whole stance is just that these are baseless claims. The same thing that every person who's accused of sexual assault says, which legally kind of holds water. It's like you've made this accusation towards me. I roundly deny all these accusations and you know until there's a charge that's kind of the end of it there are multiple women involved in this and to have like dozens of women and it's not it's not as intense as like a bill cosby situation but dozens of women that he's worked with that have said he's made inappropriate comments and advances and touch you know touch them in inappropriate ways and things and the extreme irony of working with somebody like that on a show that's about busting predators aside Number one, it's so bizarre that it's never really been fully acknowledged or reconciled. And and Chris Hansen has never just been like, he's never addressed it in any way. He's never been like, oh, this is my explanation for why I'm doing this. They've just sort of taken the approach of like, ignore that and never acknowledge it. Part of me is kind of surprised, though, that it's not the other way around. Like, part of me is surprised that, I mean, yeah, I know that Chris Hansen, had an affair and everyone was like, oh, look, you're human too. But usually when people are drawn to that type of position in life, there's a there's a deeper reason. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't give a shit. I mean, I look, I feel for Chris Hansen's wife and his kids. That sucks. But at the end of the day, life is messy. People have affairs. People cheat on each other. It fucking sucks. I'm not saying that it's like a great morally upstanding thing to do. But like... It's not something that should end your career. You yeah, know, get, adult uh, cheating on your wife or your husband or whatever is is not it's not good. I don't endorse it, but it's not a crime. It's not the worst thing a person can do in the world. Certainly not anywhere com- comparable to child predatorial behavior like they were kind of comparing it to in those in those headlines. And you know, it's 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 a thing that a significant amount, a, a significant percentage of the U.S. population engages in it at one point or another. Yeah, because life is messy, and you you're you know you're it you're not always in a position where one door opens and one door is closing at the you know in, in the opportune time. Sometimes there's overlap, whatever, whatever. I mean, I'm not defending anybody. Like everybody, there these all these motherfuckers are adults. They can, you know do whatever they're going to do. I, I, that's, I guess that's what I'm getting at is it's just like everybody's consensual. Nothing, nobody's hurting anybody. 
aside from like the emotional side of, you know, not being true and honest, but also like at that point, then where do you draw the line? Like lying, like, you know, uh, fucking doing drugs, like which drugs and how much. And let's just like, I just don't care about any of that. Like just you you do you, I'll do me. All right. Like fucking let's calm down. But I'm the people that are typically drawn to positions where they get to be like, I see what you're doing. They typically have something inside of them that is, I don't know, that's not aligned and, and that gets off on that because they subconsciously are excited about the fact that they get to show someone else up in a way that they would not want to be shown up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's why cops have so much control issues and so many control issues and, you know, straight Republicans from the South. They're like, well, homosexuals are going to burn in hell. And like every single one of them is, you know, got a 19 year old blonde dude on the side. That's how humanity works, right? Is there's always that the thing you rail against the, the, um, the most is the thing that probably has something to do with you. Not always, but a lot of the time there's that component. And it's interesting to me that while Chris Hansen obviously is a very flawed and very um, shady person <laughs> in some respects, that that aspect of his character doesn't really appear to be there. Well, I mean, so far as we know, uh, you know, there, there, yeah, that's true. there, that's true. there yeah. could be things like that. But also, I mean, some some of the things that we get into later kind of do get into that territory a little bit. We don't know anything outwardly that would point in the direction of he's got some skeletons in his closet of child predatory behavior that he's ever committed. Like nothing like that exists. But some of the stuff that we get into later on with the way that he shamelessly exploits the horrible trauma of sexual assault survivors is close. It's pretty yeah, close to that. It is. It is. Yeah, you're right. Despite his newfound freedom from Vincent and his new partner, people have mostly completely lost interest in the Onision investigation. Mostly because most of the people Hansen interviews on the show aren't actual victims of Onision, but rather random people with varying levels of tenuous connection to the story. At one point, he interviews Holly Hayes, who merely runs a Tumblr about Onision called onisionhurtspeople.tumblr.com. She doesn't know him or any alleged victims. She just hates him and runs a call-out Tumblr about him. During this interview, she seems high on drugs and later admits she was high on Xanax. The Onision investigation kind of fizzles out after that. In one last-ditch effort to resurrect his relevance in the case and get people interested and on his side again, he returned to an old tactic from his news days that has both rocketed him to massive fame as well as gotten him in deep trouble. Which would it be this time? Hansen and a camera crew flew to Washington State, went to Onision's house, and attempted to confront him. 911, what are you reporting? Hi, uh, there's a person who's been stalking me online and they just showed up to my house. Okay, and they're outside now? Yes, they're knocking on my door. Okay. And do you know if they have any weapons? They have a bunch of camera people, like they're YouTube, they're YouTube stalkers. Okay, but no weapons seen? I didn't see any weapons, I just saw like okay. six guys in my driveway okay. and one of them is knocking on my door. Okay, stuck in here. And the one that's knocking on your door, is he the main one that you said has been stalking you? Yes, he's a stalker. Okay. He's yelling He's yelling things at me through the door right now. Okay, and what do we know his name at all? It's Chris Hansen. He's still yelling things at me through the door. Greg, are you there? Ty, this would be a great opportunity for you guys to tell your side of the story here. Talk about the controversy, the allegations. 
The allegations of grooming. That was probably the most surreal phone call of that 911 operator's life. This story is so messed up because it forces you to somehow take the side of somebody who, by all accounts, is likely a vile child predator. But just to assure you that there are literally no heroes in this story and nobody comes out looking in any way superior, because of the confrontation as well as Hansen's ongoing investigations, Anision attempted to sue him for slander. But the suit quietly died after Anision accidentally served the wrong Chris Hansen. <laughs> I love it. You can't. You can't make this shit up. You just can't. It's so good. I love it. That was probably the most surreal subpoena of that Chris Hansen's life. Despite all the backlash, despite all the criticism, and despite all the flagrant incompetence, at this point, Hansen still had some ride-or-die fans from the TCAP days who he could essentially do no wrong by. As mentioned before, the amazing humanitarian accomplishment that was putting 300 online child predators behind bars during the making of TCAP was almost enough of a karmic boost to make up for anything Hansen could ever do in the future. But only almost. The final shoe dropped for a lot of even Hansen's most diehard fans when Sarah, the woman who had been groomed by Onision and Kai at 14 years old, came forward and revealed that after her interview on Chris Hansen's show, she had told him about a laptop she owned that contained explicit pictures of Kai when he was still identifying as Laney that had been sent to her when she was definitely still underage. The timestamps on the photos would prove it, and it could be hard evidence that would actually lead to prosecution. Hansen told Sarah to have the laptop shipped to Vincent, and Hansen would tap some of his FBI contacts to get it properly seized and examined by federal law enforcement. She shipped it off, assuming that fucking Chris Hansen knew what he was doing, and then heard nothing back for months. In January of 2020, journalist Steve Asarch posted on social media the story related to him by Sarah, that Hansen had asked for her to ship the laptop to Vincent, promising to hand it over to the FBI, only to find out months later that they hadn't touched the laptop at all and furious and confused, asked them to ship it back to her. After this story goes out, Hansen spoke out to defend himself, claiming that he wanted to make sure he knew the proper chain of custody before sending the laptop to anyone at the FBI in case sending it to the wrong person would somehow invalidate the evidence and make it inadmissible. However, in an ironic turn of events, the fact that Chris Hansen, a person that has been publicly campaigning for Onision to go to prison for nearly a year, who literally went to his house and stood outside harassing him, ever had possession of the laptop was considered tampering with evidence and made it completely inadmissible in court. Hansen's fuckery had certainly proved to be nothing but a distraction and largely unhelpful for the case in the past, but this was the first time that he had actively and arguably damaged the chances of the victim getting justice with his mere involvement. The TCAP community started to see Hansen differently, and he immediately started to lose supporters. His once rabid fanbase slash attack dogs were turning against him. The quote-unquote Onision investigation was dead. But old dirty Chrissy Hanhan still had one more ace up his sleeve. His name was Davi Vanity. So how are you feeling about Chris Hansen right now? Has he gone too far for you yet? Well, while he's fallen farther than you probably could have possibly ever imagined, he has so much farther to fall. From endorsing pyramid schemes, to participating in the doxing of innocent people, to actively obstructing justice. Find out the thrilling conclusion of this fall from grace next week on Case File Number 30, Chris Hansen, Episode 3. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. 
This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com where you can purchase comics like Action Hospital, Fuck Off Squad, Vicky the Wonderful, a whole bunch of other stuff. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me responding to a racist tirade by just simply saying, whoa. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt, AI, Private Eye. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and the Dead Boy Detectives, who... Sorry, sorry. Snow. Snow, sorry, this is here.